So the end of the movie, The Aviator, which I know perhaps some of you have seen, it's about a time in the life of uh, Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes is in that movie played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and it's at the very, very end of the movie, very conclusion. And he has just flown the Hercules, which a lot of people didn't think he would be able to do, what some derisively called the, the Spruce Goose, the biggest airplane ever built to ever fly. And he's just come down from that heights. He's just from down from the, from the flight, and he is feeling uh, very, very good, obviously. And, and someone has asked him, you know, what, what is this about what you're going to do next? He says, it's the way of the future. It's the way of the future. Now, if you've seen the movie or you know anything about Howard Hughes, you know that he suffered from a form of obsessive compulsive disorder that eventually took his sanity away from him. And he starts repeating the way of the future, the way of the future, the way of the future, the way of the future. And some of his handlers take him and they take him to this really dingy, ugly bathroom to hide him away so no one can see him like this. And he looks in the mirror, looks almost as if he's about to cry, repeating the way of the future, the way of the future, the way of the future. Something that was said at first positively and optimistically now has become a crushing irony. And we see in a flashback in the mirror one of the events in his life that helped to form him. Maybe in some ways deform him. And his eyes grow red and very sad. You get the sense in there that he wants to move forward, but he can't. I think of that image as a very powerful, potent image of arrested development. The way of the future, the way of the future, the way of the future being only in his case about the past. Easter is at its deepest level about unarresting our development, about freeing and liberating the life within us so that we can continue to grow in this existence. It is about also as well letting go so that we are able to grow. I heard two examples of this this past week, less dramatic than the end of the aviator and the way of the future, but also I think closer to home for us in many ways. The first is from a wonderful group with the great name Curvy Yoga. I don't know if any of you have heard of that. Curvy Yoga. It's yoga by... Women and men of many different body shapes and sizes. And it was an open letter, really a love letter, but also a protest letter against a certain kind of arrested development to what is probably the most well-known yoga magazine called Yoga Journal. And the head, the leader of Curvy Yoga is lodging a protest, saying, you know, so often these images and the stories that I see and read and hear in Yoga Journal almost assume as if there was one type of yoga body. You know, size zero, a hard body, all tight and tense and firmed. And she said, that's not the reality of many of us who do yoga. So I want to encourage you. Don't put images out there that are harmful to people who really have gotten great things from this practice. Don't assume that we all look the same. And simply because we don't look the same doesn't mean that we are not flourishing through this practice. The second... It's from the governor, or I guess now he's just Arnold Schwarzenegger again, if you want to call him that. And I wish, I really wish in reading this, uh, that I could do both an Austrian accent with a slight speech impediment, uh, because it would sound much, much better in the original, well, whatever Arnold speaks, whatever that is. And, well, we're all adults here, so I'll give you the full quote. I feel shitty when I look at myself in the mirror. I'm not competing I'm not ripping off my shirt and trying to sell the body. When I stand in front of the mirror and really look, I wonder what the bleep happened to me. Jesus Christ, what a beating.
a famous man. I suppose we could say accomplished, but I, I guess it depends upon what you think of his political record and also what you think of kindergarten cop. So I'll leave that into, <laughs> uh, into your mind, into your hands, whether you can say Arnold Schwarzenegger is accomplished. But he wishes more than anything else. This 16-something man who has had so much success wishes more than anything else. And he can only be young again. He can only look young again. And he believes that somehow he is failing in this life, that he hates himself. I'm not sure I've heard a more powerful articulation, more tragic in some ways, of what arrested development is really all about. It brings to my mind that Jesus was only 33 when Jesus was killed. And were I to venture a guess, and I'm going to venture a guess right now, so I'm doing it, that if we would poll a whole bunch of Americans and they were to pick the quote-unquote ideal age, I think it would be somewhere right around 33. Not just the ideal age, but an age that many of us tend to, I just turned 41 this year, an age that many of us tend to idolize, make an idol of, thinking it is the ideal for fitness or health or youth or vitality. Not quite adult yet, but no longer a kid and not on the other age of 35, so you're not near 40 yet. I think if you would poll people, it would be somewhere right around 33. But here's the thing. I remember my age at 33. I know a lot of 33-year-olds as well, too. That's the only, in some ways, beginning of the cultivation process of maturity and seasoning and depth that leads people into real emotional, relational, and spiritual maturity. I remember once when I was in a time of deep despair, and I was just about 33 years old, just a couple days past 33 years old, And a friend wrote me an email very simply and absolutely necessarily healingly. He said, remember that most of what has happened to us in this life, what will happen to us in this life, hasn't happened yet. I needed that breath of fresh air to remember that there was still life to bring forth within me. And although in that time I very much felt as if I had flunked the test of this existence, that in fact that was not true and there was still life to be brought forth My friend issued an invitation to grow, and I felt for the first time in months at that point in my life that I could answer it yes, just from his reminder. And it reminds me of my favorite Jesus tradition, my favorite Jesus saying that isn't even in the Bible. It's in a whole body of literature that is as old as the Bible, but didn't make it into the Bible. And I'll tell you why in just a little bit. It's what's called the Gospel of Thomas, and these words will show you right here. Jesus says these words, if you bring forth that which is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth that which is within you, that which is within you will condemn you. Now, this is not the kind of condemnation that is external, that judging that comes upon us because somehow we are deficient. It's the kind of condemnation and self-judgment That we can hear in Arnold Schwarzenegger's voice, of all people, because he refuses to answer in some ways the first part of that. If you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. Saying that we are not original sinners, we are not originally depraved, the stuff inside ourselves is not debased, it is holy, it is sacred, but it is our job to cultivate it and to bring it out through all of our lives. New life wants to break free, new life wants to be creative, that there is good stuff, deep stuff, rich stuff inside of us. But if we don't bring it out, if we do not answer the call of new life, which is ever changing, ever growing, it will impose a heavy cost within us in terms of arrested development, in terms of sadness, despair, depression. 
especially as adults, it is so easy for us to wire ourselves up, wire ourselves down, actually, to not bring forth new life, to insist upon the durability, the predictability in our lives, to insist upon the appearance that we would wish to give out, to insist upon our perfection, to insist upon our competence, to insist upon all the ways in which we've got everything under control. I mean, we have a lot invested in keeping us, us. We have a lot invested, perhaps based in this fear. If the me who was me is not to be, then who am I? The me who is not to be is not to be here. Then what am I? This lamenting of change, this lamenting of the loss of control, this lamenting at this deepest level, this complaint that Thomas Merton said, the great contemplative monk, was the deepest neurosis there is, which is the refusal to accept that mortality is a part of life. And that is a part of Easter as well. We hear it in Arnold Schwarzenegger, this refusal to bring forth something new, instead lamenting only what has been lost. This self-image that he assumed was supposed to stay exactly as it was all the time. And then when it changes, he sees only grief there. I remember talking to one of my best friends a number of years ago, five, six years ago, about his son, who is my godson in the weeks, those wonderful weeks, the sleepless in many ways, weeks after his son was born. And through the sleep deprivation... I remember he used this great phrase when we were talking. He said, I'm seeing all of his systems. I'm seeing all of my son's systems come online. I'm seeing all of these great new things that he's expressing about himself day after day after day. There's all this learning, all this growing. And so if we really look at the base of the base of what life is really all about, we see that, in fact, we were not born solid. We were born remarkably fluid. We were born to flourish, born to bring forth. But as we age, especially if we feel we are deficient somehow, we've got this tendency to look at our lives like a structure, like a solid structure that is planted in the ground. And it's an understandable thing. I mean, I do it all the time. What's the first thing we very often do as adults when we ask someone how they're doing the first time we meet them? What do you do for a living? That's a structural question. And I know I cannot, and I'm telling on myself a little bit here, I cannot tell you how many times people ask me how I am doing, and you know what I go right into? I tell them how Wellsprings is doing. Because <laughs> Wellsprings is the structure I've been building. But that's a false answer. It's that answer that wants to say, look what I've built. We all can say this. Look what I've built as somehow a guarantee that we're living a life of meaning. I love being a part of building Wellsprings. But that's not the answer. That's the structural answer. I think building... A building, a structure is the wrong metaphor for our lives, the wrong image for our lives. What if we would find out and explain ourselves to ourselves and explain ourselves to each other by not referring to a building, but instead understanding that we at our very base, we are a movement. What if rather than a building, what if water was our metaphor by which we explained ourselves? How much more could we say with ease, I am bringing forth new life because that's just what water does. It flows new small things, new big things, new any things because that's what water does. It flows and that's very much what Easter is about to bring forth the life within us. To know that sometimes the most difficult times in our lives are when we say to ourselves or say to someone else, look what I've built. 
Look at who I am. And then the fear creeps in. Well, if I am not what I have built, then what am I? Am I worthy? Am I valuable? Am I lovable? Do I count? Will anyone make space, make room for me? Will I make room for myself? And this is where this message of Easter is so powerful, where certain kinds of spirituality can really help us, can help to remake our lives and unleash that flow within us. Those moments when not just the cracks in the facade start to show, but the building shakes at its very foundations and we're wondering how we can continue to stand in this life. This is why I love the Gospel of Thomas, which was not included in the Bible for many different reasons. The Gospel of Thomas, which says mystically, wonderfully, split a piece of wood and I am there. Turn over a rock and I am there. It is everywhere, the spirits. It correlates with one of my favorite teachings that is in the gospel. Contrary to what Calvinism said, the movement against which Unitarianism and Universalism emerged, saying we are not inherently depraved. And this was one of the ways that those early Unitarians and Universalists understood it, that the realm of God is inside each and every one of us, that sacredness permeates every crack and crevice of creation. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a guy living on my floor who was studying at Columbia. He was getting his PhD in Buddhism, particularly studying Tibetan Buddhism. And he was studying with a guy named uh, Robert Thurman that some of you may know. And you probably almost all of you know his daughter, who you, yes, is Uma Thurman. And he went very often on these spring retreats. He went on these spring weeks-long, sometimes a month-long retreats. And he talked about one monk that he saw that was visiting, who was originally, I mean, this guy was sold. He remembers living in Tibet. He spoke almost no English. And he said in these springtime retreats, this ancient monk, as he would walk down the path throughout the retreat center, he would stop and he would bow to every little sprout that he saw growing. It was translated for my friend that this is just, the monk said, Buddha nature bowing to Buddha nature. The sacredness is everywhere. This is what the Gospel of Thomas talks about. Elaine Pagels, who has taught at Princeton University for years and was one of the first scholars to really dig into these rich, deep traditions that have been lost for centuries, existed as long as the Gospels in the Bible had existed, but it had not been found until the 1940s. And Lane Pagels, in talking about these alternative Gospels and the Gospel of Thomas, says that there's one thing about Thomas's name. Thomas is not a proper name in Greek or in Aramaic. It means the word twin. What Elaine Pagel says is that the reason Thomas is named Thomas is because not unlike Calvinism, unlike Calvinism, it is not the matter of God being up here and us being lowly and debased. Rather than infinite distance between ourselves and the holy, there is an intimate connection between ourselves and the very source of life that is woven throughout all of life. And by the way, that phrase, Doubting Thomas, you all know that, Doubting Thomas, that is first and second century Christian church formation propaganda. A political campaign, if you will, trying to tar an alternative understanding of the tradition. That image comes from John, the Gospel of John, which was seen as the one in which Jesus most understands himself for some and not for others. Thomas eventually was removed from the canon and the tradition because it represented a very different idea of the holy. Thomas, it was said, and Elaine Pagels talks about that, did his ministry travel throughout in India 
and represents a whole bunch of very, very early Christian church traditions that is much more dynamic and mystical and flowing. The sadness of these teachings being lost for generation, for centuries, for almost two millennia, is that as the church starts to come together and become a political entity, the divine becomes less and less everywhere and more and more up there. The religion of the empire starts to become imperial, starts to talk about emperor and king and the image of God as somehow the big boss in charge in the sky. These images of God, I got to tell you, leave me completely cold. And to say this, that I really don't believe in those kinds of image, doesn't cost me, I think, any more than saying, I don't believe in Thor or I don't believe in Zeus. Those are images of the divine that I do not believe unleash that deep divine capacity within us. But the divinity of breath, of sacred permeating, all of us split a piece of wood and it is there. Look in the deep water and it is there. The ground of being all around us that we stand on right now, it is always around, within, and between. But it is certainly not a solid building but a sacred movement through this life. If we choose our metaphors wisely and choose our metaphors well, we will find that our metaphors and the stories that we choose will reveal the meaning and the story of life within us. There is a very, very powerful passage in Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, that I've talked about a little bit over the last few weeks. An evangelist who really has come out as a universalist who rejects the idea that some are going to suffer eternal damnation because they do not believe in Jesus a certain way. He tells a story about sitting on the edge of his stage after his services are done on Sunday morning. And there's a woman who has been in his church for a very long time who comes up and places a small scrap of paper in his hand and has a number written on it. Sometimes the number is three, sometimes the number is five, sometimes the number is 25, sometimes the number is 62. She just gives it to him and move on. What that represents are the amount of days since she has caused injury to herself. She grew up in a family believing that she was worth nothing. And so she has sought out and given herself sadly throughout much of her life to relationships in which she is treated like nothing. But she goes to that church, Rob Bell says, to remember a different image, a different metaphor about who she is. That she is as worthy of that infinite, original, beautiful wholeness and love as any creature who has ever lived. She is struggling, and that's why she writes down that strip of paper, because sometimes she cannot help it. She feels she must injure herself. But she is struggling to bring forth that new life and believe something different about herself than she may have before. That's what I love about that image. If we bring forth new life, it's an action. It's something we do over and over and over again. It's not about believing a certain thing and saying, it's all taken care of. It's not. It is a verb. It is saying that is the beginning, so is now. That what if it wasn't a structure? What if we're not a structure? What if it is all flow? What if it is, to use the image, all Tao? In us, within us, moving, helping to free us. This is an everyday Easter kind of faith. This is an everyday Easter kind of faith that says death and birth are right here, right now. And sometimes there are incredibly painful deaths. 
But still, once more in this moment, we can choose to bring forth the life that is within us and that it will, in fact, continue to save us and make us whole. It sometimes means leaving behind some of those images of how we think our lives should be. The radical Catholic priest and contemplative Richard Rohr says, It is always we, us, in our youth, in our beauty, in our power, in our overprotectedness that must be handed over. Otherwise, we won't grow up, grow big enough to eat of the mystery of God of love. It is really about passing over to the next level of faith in life. And that never happens without some kind of dying, letting go of the previous level of life. This is difficult work. This is difficult work for all of us, especially if we're in the midst of this right now in our lives. And I'm sure some of us in this room are. But Thomas has some great teachings for that as well, too. He says, let the one who seeks not stop until she finds. And when she finds, she will become troubled. And when she becomes troubled, then she will become astonished. Those moments of hitting the wall, those moments of hitting our edge, those moments of self-recognition are truly, I believe, moments of invitation to grow life deeper within us and bring deeper life forth from within us. Those moments of invitation are spotted all throughout our life. And like I said, some of us right now here in this room are struggling with what that means. It is an invitation, I believe, at its deepest level to unarrest our development, to do a new thing, to unlearn a damaging lesson, to say, I am sorry, to let go resentment to grant forgiveness to know what it is to love more deeply more truly and to share more deeper compassion i am a hopeful deeply hopeful universalist and actually let me strike that because i believe universalism is the most hopeful thing that humanity has ever done so that's just redundant i am a universalist i think that we will travel with these unused moments if we do not accept the invitation and that they have no expiration date on them until we get to that moment somehow learning that we can cash them in and bring forth the life within us. Basically, until that moment that we are reconciled with the truth of our lives, until we can recognize that we can flow in our wholeness. Now, I talked earlier about an experience I had when I was about age 33. I was living in South Florida, I was living in South Florida, and the woman that I had been married to had moved out some months before, three months before, and it was not a, shall we say, happy time in my life. I knew I didn't want that marriage to continue anymore, but I also didn't know who I was any longer. It was also the week, this particular week that I was talking about, was right at the start of the Iraq War. Right at the start of the Iraq war, and actually I found it so much easier to preach in those weeks and those months right after September 11th than I did around the time of the Iraq war. Perhaps it was that the fear was settling in. I was trying to find something original, something helpful to say to my congregation, something that they couldn't just say, well, I could have stayed home and read the op-ed page and gotten the exact same message. I really wanted to do something that would help to put the difficulty of that time into some deeper measure. And so I started early that week. I started early in my message on that Wednesday. And I sat down to write, and I don't think I have ever had a bigger crap flow come from my brain. It was awful. All right, it's Wednesday. I have Thursday. I can wait. Thursday comes. More garbage. Friday comes. 
more garbage. Saturday comes and oh, by the way, when I'm living alone and thinking I have nothing to say, that next day, Sunday, when I have the sermon to preach and I have no idea what to say, that's also my 33rd birthday. So I'm failure. So, so understand here that this sermon isn't just a test of whether I have anything original to say. This is the crucible upon which hangs my entire worth and value as a person. Trying to prove that somehow there is still life to bring forth within me. That there's something I can say that is of value. Because i got to tell you folks, I do not feel it. And so I wake up early on that Saturday morning, March the 22nd. I wake up early and I sit absolute garbage, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and the anger and the anxiety is getting worse. I am getting closer and closer to the zero hour in which I will fail. I will fail at my life and prove to myself that, yes, it is all past tense for me. I have nothing more to offer. And by the way, it was one of these really beautiful, beautiful days in South Florida, and I live near the beach. It's like 79 degrees and no humidity, and all my windows were open, and I could hear the cries of joy and elation and happiness coming from the pool and from the beach beyond that. And I felt like I had my nose pressed up against the party, and I was not invited. I felt like, you know what I really felt like? I felt like now I know what vampire sadness is like. Not in some horror movie kind of way, but vampire sadness in which the light and the love and the life are not for me anymore. I am not welcome there. And of course, I have the tiny little violin and it's such a pity party that I'm playing for myself. And I can laugh about now, but it wasn't funny to me back then. Because the anger was so real, this sense that I was an absolute failure. And six o'clock came along and seven o'clock came along. I thought, this is it. I'm done. And I did the only thing I could think to do, which was to sit and pray. Pray through gritted teeth. Help me. God damn it, help me. That's a prayer too. Help me. Help me. And from wherever it came, I don't know where, it doesn't matter. From up above or down below or within, these words were as clear as I was sitting there. Jesus wept. Well, if he could, so can I. And I sobbed like, since my first girlfriend broke up with me when I was 13, I mean like, completely pitiable, sobbing, wrenching sobs. It went on for a half hour. It stopped and then go right back. And you all know, come on, let's be honest. We've all cried like that. At least I hope we can. That kind of cleansing sob is like bringing forth because that's the kind of life that needed to be brought forth from within me. And it was saving. And after I cleaned myself off, I sat down and I banged out that sermon in about 75 minutes to 90 minutes. (laughs) By 9 o'clock, I was done. Because the stone had been removed. Because the path was open. And I was able to bring forth that life that wanted to be within me, which was pain and loneliness and sorrow. Which, of course, is one of the most common human emotions that there is. I learned in that moment something I've been talking about recently. 
what Dr. Christina Neff talks about, the Buddhist practitioner and the academic. I learned what it is to know true self-compassion, kindness extended towards the self, mindfulness about where I really was, and even more liberating that in that moment of knowing that Jesus wept and so can I, well, there is a humanity common to all of us, and the burdensomeness of my loneliness was gone. The most powerful image to me in all of our beliefs and values is this. It is for me almost an archetype of living and for living, a metaphor of emergence and bringing forth the caterpillar, the chrysalis, and the butterfly. Unlike what is true for the butterfly, however, it is not once and done for us. There are many seasons in which we have to go back into that chrysalis, sometimes kicking and screaming our whole way in to recognize that new life wants to come through us. It is not once and done, this process of emergence, this bringing forth, but it is an invitation all throughout life. It is an invitation on the day we were born. It is an invitation on the last day that we will be here. It is an invitation on the first day of school or the last day of school. It is an invitation on the first day of the relationship or the last day of the relationship. It is an invitation for the first day in the job or the last day in the job. It is an invitation all throughout life. How are we bringing that life forth within us that will help to save us? Not once and done but always and ongoing. So I would invite us today, whether you are suffering or happy or bored or wondering what the hell's going on, or whether you absolutely know what's going on and whether that's wonderful or scares you to your very guts. Today, let's bring forth. Bring forth through seasons of despair. Bring forth through seasons of joy. And know that life is always bringing forth and moving out and moving in and moving up and moving down. And we can recognize on this Easter morning the absolute beauty and truth of what Emily Dickinson wrote many years ago. Even more than E.E. Cummings, I think my favorite Easter poem. Somehow myself survived the night and entered with the dawn. Somehow myself survived the night and entered with the dawn. If we bring forth, we will know absolutely what that somehow means. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. A simple prayer on this beautiful Easter day. Spirits, may we know that just as the air, the water, the flow of life is around us, so too it is deep within us, the deepest truth about us, in fact. May we give ourselves that primordial permission to say yes to the life that wants to be brought forth. And may we live life as a bringing forth, as an offering back to life and know that this is the way truly we will grow and flourish. And may we know as we are about to sing that we can truly reach up for the sunrise, that this new day, new life is ours. Amen.